Jesus, God, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for a morning that we can just sit and worship you and we can raise our hands and raise our voices and give you praise and just say, Jesus, you are God. Um, I thank you just so much for what came out of worship this morning, God, that we can actually know you, that we can know you more. And then when we feel like we've known you, we can know you even more. And God, you so desire that we would know you. And so God, I just pray for every single person that came here this morning, God, that you would transform us. For those of us that came in here and said, God, I need you. God, I pray that you would transform us. For the people that came in and they don't even wanna be here, transform them anyway, God. God, we pray for transformation. We thank you, God, that if, if you're here and if we're here in your presence, God, that you're gonna change us, that your word will not return void and you're gonna do a work this morning, um, not because of me or because of anybody else, um, but because of the power of your spirit and the power of your gospel. And so today, God, we worship you. We pray that you would teach us, that you would change us, that you would grow us, and that you would allow us to know you better, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so before we get into this, guys, I have a little a qualm that I got to throw out. This headset is the worst thing ever created. Okay, you guys can't really see this. So it loops around both ears, and then it goes around the back. It is, it's awful, you guys. And so, like, we've been having, like, headset problems, and you heard, like, popping and stuff like that. So we don't have that anymore, but I got this sweet headgear thing going on. It is awful. It is awful. So, uh, so if all of a sudden I just like rage quit and walk out, you'll know what happened. It was just it was the headset. Okay. Uh, all right, we got that out of the way. So, uh, Colossians. So we're uh, continuing our study in the book of Colossians. Uh, over the last couple weeks, we've, we've been looking at this letter uh, written by Paul. And uh, if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, what we've kind of looked at is basically Paul's intro. He's writing to this uh, the city of Colossae, and he's basically telling them, hey, I'm Paul, I'm writing you this letter. And he just basically is encouraging them over the last few weeks, that he's basically been, hey, I'm so proud of what God is doing. I'm so proud of your faith. I'm so proud for your love for all the saints. Um, he shares how he's praying for them. He wants them to grow in knowledge and wisdom and depth of insight and all that stuff. Um, so he did, basically over the last few weeks, we kind of looked at this intro of this letter. And today we're really getting into like the meat and potatoes. Any meat and potato people? Amen. I'm doing this keto thing, you guys. I can't have any potatoes. I'm, di I'm dying. That's like, I, I don't actually, I don't really miss anything else, but dude, some sweet like potatoes, steak. Oh, come on. Uh, anyways, okay. Uh, where was I? Here we go, background of Colossae. So uh, what I thought we would do before we hopped into the passage today, now that we're really kind of getting into the meat of what we're looking at, uh, to give you kind of a little bit of background on the letter, what's happening in Colossae, why did Paul write this letter, and it really helps us understand uh, what we're looking at today. So background on uh, the church of Colossae, um, Paul probably didn't even do a missionary journey in Colossae. He probably never went there. If you've been reading, uh, read through the book of Acts, you see all these missionary journeys that Paul did, and it never mentions Colossae. Um, and it's actually the small town in comparison to some of the bigger towns he went, like obviously Ephesus and Rome were the kind of big mega cities. And Colossae is just like kind of little just town over here, right? Um, it's kind of like uh, writing a letter to like Claremont instead of like, Los Angeles or something, right? Like it's just kind of this little town in comparison. Uh, but the reason this letter is written uh, is actually because there's this guy named Epaphras uh, who actually sat under Paul's teaching for two years in Ephesus. And Ephesus was the time, a place where Paul taught a lot. And so this guy Epaphras, he was actually came to the Lord through Paul and he actually became the leader of this church in Colossae. 
And so he was having this big issue with all of this false teaching that was kind of getting thrown around in the church that was kind of infiltrating the gospel message uh, that they were teaching. And so the reason that this letter was written was ultimately to kind of speak to that false teaching that, uh, that Epaphras came to Paul while he's in prison and said, hey, can you help me speak to this false teaching that we're hearing that's coming around? So uh, Paul probably wrote this letter while he was in Rome, uh, while he's uh, in a prison in Rome. Uh, if you read like Acts 27, 28, he's actually kind of in like home confinement and uh, it's believed that's where he wrote kind of most of these letters. So that's kind of the background of kind of what we're looking at. Um, and the main reason for writing this letter, the main problem that Epaphras had that was going on in the church of Colossae was this idea of Gnosticism. And so Gnosticism at this time, what they believed, uh, a lot of it was driven from kind of Greek philosophy and Greek kind of religion understanding. Uh, and one of the things that they believed is that everything that was spiritual, everything that was spiritual was good, was perfect, was holy, was great. And everything that was physical, everything that is like the physical body, uh, anything in, on earth, all that stuff is bad. It's impure, it's imperfect, right? And so Gnostics basically believed everything on the spiritual realm was great, was awesome. Everything in the physical world didn't matter. And so because of that, the Gnostics taught that it didn't matter what you did in the body, right? So there was this teaching influencing in the church that when, when they would talk about sin, they would say, oh, sin done in the body, it doesn't matter because that's part of the physical Right? And so that was this teaching that was kind of working its way in, uh, that they were trying to kind of funnel into the, the teaching of the church. Um, they also worshiped angels and demons was one of the things that they did. And so the reason because of this is Greek philosophy, they believed that, uh, that Greek gods never came down and interacted with man. And so the only way that they would interact with man is they would impart some of their power, some of their likeness, some of their godness, um, they would give some of their power over to like an angel or a demon, and those would be the ones that would kind of infiltrate the world uh, that they lived in. And so they would kind of worship these angels and demons that they believed had kind of special power from their God or whatever. Um, and finally, they taught that they had special knowledge. Um, this one's my favorite because you'll see it in basically every cult uh, of religion for all time. What they taught was that we have a special knowledge that nobody else has, right? And the only way you can get that special knowledge from me is if you pay me a lot of money, right? Or you like, you dress like me, you wear the same shoes that I do, right? You know, um, and, uh, and so that was their teaching was that, oh, we have this special wisdom, this special knowledge from God and that you can't have it unless you ask me for it or you pay me for it or you do what I do, right? Um, and so that teaching was trying to infiltrate itself into the church. And that's really why Paul writes this letter. And when you kind of have that background and understanding, it helps you to kind of see what Paul is communicating in the passage we're looking at today. Um, so what you'll see is that he makes some really clear standards about gospel, about the doctrine of what we believe. And so he talks about how Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, and it's not that everything that is spiritual is good, everything that's uh, physical is bad, it's that Jesus was fully God, spiritual, and fully man, physical, right? Um, that worship is reserved for God only, not angels and demons like they were teaching, and that all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding, all ability to know God was freely open to them, that there was no special knowledge that they had to get from some special person, right? So that's kind of what we'll look at today, just to give you kind of background of what that looks like, Okay. Um, so the passage we're going to look at today is Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. So if you've got Bibles, tablets, phones, whatever you look on, uh, that's where we'll be starting. And I'm actually going to read the whole passage, um, which I think is kind of cool because, so back in the day, they believed that this passage 
was actually kind of like a hymn that they would sing, that it was like this big doctrinal statement and that they would actually, as a church, that they would kind of speak this statement about the doctrine of God and they would sing, it would kind of be like a hymn of worship that they would do. So I'm gonna read the whole thing for us. Uh, Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen? So we'll start at verse 15. He says this. um, This is the first big statement. And when we read it, we might not think it's that big, but this is a huge statement that Paul is making. Uh, Verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that word image, uh, when, when it's actually translated from the Greek, the Greek translation for image is actually uh, where we get our English word icon. So if you think of like, a, like, a, like a, on your desktop, you have an icon for a computer program or you have like your phone and you have an app, right? And there's like a, you know, you got your, your Pinterest and your Twitter, whatever, whatever you guys are looking at, right? But, you, but basically you look at a picture and you know based on that picture, I know what that program is gonna be like, right? So I, like I know if I click on that button, that's gonna take me to that software or that's gonna take me to that app. And that's the word that they use to describe Jesus, right? That he is the icon, that if basically Jesus serves as this picture of, if you want to know what God is like, here is Jesus, right? And that Jesus is that icon where it's like we tap into Jesus and we're going to know what that program, we're going to know what that app is like. We're going to know exactly what God is like because he is the full and complete picture of who God is. He is that icon, and some of the definitions that uh, they had in the Greek for this word, there's kind of two definitions that they use for that word image. Um, the first one would be the picture of Caesar on a coin. So if you think in this time, all the money that they would have uh, would all be Roman money, and this is obviously during Roman rule. And so they would understand this, that, that that image, that icon would be, whenever they had a coin, they would like hold it up and there would be a picture of Caesar on it, right? And every time they saw that picture, they understood that this coin This bore the authority and the power of Caesar and the Roman government. That was the image, the icon of Caesar. And the other definition for this word that we see is it was used to describe a reflection in a mirror. So that if you were to look in the mirror, right, you you look at yourself, the reflection that you would see isn't something that it's like, hey, that kind of looks like me or like it's mostly me. Uh, but you actually look at it and you go, that's exactly what I look like, right? It's a pure reflection of who I am. And so this statement that Paul is making is incredibly powerful. He's saying that Jesus is the exact reflection of God. Not that he is kind of like him or that he's in his likeness or he has kind of, kind of is kind of like God. He's saying in, in fullness, in complete deity, the reflection of God is Jesus. He is that icon and that we can look to Jesus and know what God is like. That we can look to him and know what God is like, which is incredibly powerful. 
And so when you think of that word image, we probably think of, uh, if you think of like the Genesis creation story, we think like all of us, we were made in the image of God, right? Uh, but that's not what it says. It's not that he is in the image of the invisible God. He is the image, the image of the invisible God. And this statement is even more powerful if you think about the readers of this day. Um, Colossae was filled with a lot of Gentiles, but there was also a ton of Jewish people that were there. And Paul, who wrote this, was also Jewish, right? Um, and so if you look in all of the Old Testament, how many of you guys have been doing like the Bible reading plan? Anybody, anybody? Okay, so as we've, as we've been going through the Old Testament, you've probably seen something like this like a million times, uh, like this verse here in uh, Exodus chapter 20. God says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And we see verses like that throughout all of the Old Testament where God makes it explicitly clear that you do not make any images, you do not make any idols, you as a man, as a woman, you don't craft anything out of wood or, or anything out of stone and then put that in your home and worship it. That God was incredibly serious about people not creating idols. And the reason is because anything created by the hands of man was always gonna pale in comparison to the, the fullness and the completeness of his deity and his righteousness and his holiness. It was never going to match up. And so he said, never ever do we make images or idols. And you see that all through the Old Testament. You even see when you look at the temple, um, it, there's like uh, in the Old Testament where like the high priest would go in, he'd go into the Holy of Holies. There wouldn't be any images in there. It was just the presence of God would be in the temple. When Moses would go into the tent of meeting, there's no images, there's no idols, there's no, nothing that he bows down to. It's he would go into the tent of meeting and meet with the physical presence of God. And so through all of the Old Testament, there are no images, nothing. It's gonna pale in comparison. And then all of a sudden Jesus steps on the pages of history and he says, this is the image. This is the image of the invisible God. And the only reason he can be the image of the invisible God is he has to have the same likeness, the same godness, the same righteousness, the same holiness. He has to fully and completely be God for God to be able to say he is the image of the invisible God. And so that statement, when we read it alone, it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool or whatever. But when you understand kind of like what he's communicating here, it's incredibly powerful that he's saying without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is God. And he wants to make that incredibly clear. We see in uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it uh, says this. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. He says he's the exact representation. He's that reflection in the mirror. He's the exact representation and the radiance of God's glory. Uh, we see Jesus says it this way in the gospels in John uh, chapter 14. Uh, we actually looked at this passage uh, when we did our Easter series. Um, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, do you, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says, and this is great, I love this so much, you guys. And then Philip says, 
Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. Like right after Jesus is like, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Then he's like, but yeah, but show us the Father, dude, you know? <laughs> so stupid. Uh, but he says, uh, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And that statement from Jesus is incredibly powerful because he's not saying I'm kind of like God or I have some Godness. He's saying, if, you, if you've seen me, Jesus, you've seen the Father. He and I, we are one and the same, but different in the Trinity. And how does that work? I don't know. We don't understand it. But, but that's what he's communicating is if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when Paul is saying he's the image of the invisible God, he's saying he is fully and completely God. And as we talked about kind of the teaching of the Gnostics, why this was so important, is this was something that just flew right in the face of what the Gnostics were teaching, because he's saying that Jesus is fully God, and he's also fully man. And they had huge problems with that, because they believed that everything that was physical was bad and evil, and everything that was spiritual was good, right? So, um, so he's coming out and saying, no, no, it's not, there's not a difference between sacred and secular. There's not spiritual and physical, that he's fully God and fully man. Uh, finishing up on that verse, uh, verse 15, he says uh, also this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of all creation. And this, uh, this verse has been taken out of context by so many religions and so many people throughout history because when we see that word firstborn, like what do we think of? You probably think of like your firstborn, right? Um, and we as Western people, we think of firstborn as like, oh, that's my first kid, right? So my, my first kid is a, it's joy. And so I'd be like, oh, that's my firstborn, right? Um, but what that word is actually better translated, it actually means, it actually means um, of highest rank. So it's actually kind of a military term. So it actually means uh, where we would think of like a, like a four-star general or something like that. That it's saying that he, not so much that he was the firstborn one, because obviously there was tons of people that were around before Jesus uh, came on earth, but that he is of the highest rank, that he's of the highest authority. And so he's saying not only is he the image of the invisible God, not only is he the exact representation of his being, he also has all the authority of God. He has the authority over all of creation, over you and me and animals and beings and all that stuff. He has authority over all of it because he is the firstborn, the highest rank over all of creation. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the statement that he makes is this Jesus was also creator, that all things were created by him and for him. And again, as the Gnostics were teaching, physical things were, were bad and were evil and spiritual things were good and were right. He's saying, no, 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 this Jesus, this creator who was fully God and fully man, this creator, he created heaven and earth. He created the visible and the invisible and thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. All things, both spiritual and physical, were created by God, by Jesus. For by all things uh, were created by him. And so uh, as we've been talking about Greek translations of things, that word all, uh, guys, this is crazy. You're never going to believe this. It means all. That's what it means. That's crazy. 
Aren't you guys so glad you came to church? This is awesome. Uh, so yeah, that word all literally means all. And you know, like sometimes we try to find a loophole or like, oh, what does that really mean? It's, it really just means all. That he's saying, for by him, all things, every single thing on the planet, every single uh, molecular, minute, detailed people, animals, everything, all of creation was created by him. And it was also created for him. That you and I, were created for him. Uh, I was thinking about this verse. Uh, I was walking around our, our house this morning in our backyard, and like, and I, and I saw like it was like a little lizard or something, and it started doing push-ups and stuff, you know. Um, and uh, and I was like, I don't even know what the purpose of the lizard is. I don't know. Like, I guess they get flies or something. But then he was like doing push-ups and stuff, and and then I was like, oh, but like that's for him, right? Like. That made him happy that, like, I'm going to make this stupid thing do this stupid thing, right? Uh, Like, that made him happy. And so he did it, right? So he created all these things. All things were created for him uh, in heaven and on earth. And and the reality is that if he created all things for himself, and if he has authority over all of creation, then he deserves our worship. That if he's truly God... He deserves our worship. If, if he is the exact representation of God, if he created all things, he deserves our worship. And then it says in verse 17, and he is before all things. So before all of creation happened, before any life happened, he is before all things. There was this teaching going around that they said, well, Jesus Uh, He couldn't have been fully God and fully man, so he had to be fully man, which means he was created. So he wasn't there when creation happened, right? And so Paul makes it very clear to state that this Jesus, before all things were created, Jesus was there. And we see that sentiment both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all over the pages of both. Um, Here's some examples. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First book of the Bible, first chapter, first verse, in the beginning, God. And when we see God there, we kind of like, like to think of like, oh, that means God like the Father. That's not what it means. It's God the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were there before time began, before anything created in the beginning God. John chapter 1, uh, this is the gospel account of John, the beginning of his gospel that he writes. He says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W Word, that's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And the word Jesus was with God, and the word Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so if he is the image of this invisible God, if he's of the highest rank, and he has all the power and dominion and authority, and he created all these things for himself, He has all authority, like, right? Like, we don't dictate what we think God should do or should be like or what life should be like. If he's done all that and all that is true, then we're under submission to him. Because he created all things. He has all authority and all things were created for himself. Verse 17, and he says this, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And when I read that verse, I kind of started just thinking about just the, the world. And don't you like look, look around the world? Um, I've, I've been like not reading the news probably for like a good 
month and a half or whatever, it's been awesome. <laughs> like, uh, but I, every once in a while, I run into somebody that they're really mad about something, and I have no idea what they're mad about, you know? Um, and uh, it's been great, so I uh, highly recommend it. Um, and, uh, but when we look at what's going on in the world, when we watch the news and all that kind of stuff, we go, oh, man, like, life is falling apart, and life sucks, and what's, what's going on? And, and people are like, oh, what is God doing, and stuff like that. And then I read this verse, and it was like, and in him all things hold together. And that somehow, some way, that God is working in a way that he holds this whole thing together. And if you just kind of look around at life, you go like, yeah, no, this is chaotic and crazy. Like, yeah, no, he's holding stuff together, right? Um, and, then I, and then I saw this as I was studying. Um, I'm not like a, I'm not like a, super, I'm not a, a science person. I, I don't do science. Uh, I do not do science, but I read this, and guys, I was blown away. So this is probably like first grade science, which is probably where I dropped out. Um, but, uh, but guys, check this out. This is so cool. So, so in, in this verse, he's saying not only did he create all life, but all life is sustained um, by him. And so uh, what I found out, and this is so cool, did you guys know that it's a mystery to scientists why the nucleus of atoms holds together? Now, when you think of all the, all the building blocks of life, it's all made from an atom. And scientists have been studying atoms for years. And they'll, they'll get into an atom, and then they dig deeper into an atom. Then there's another atom with an atom. And they dig deep and dig deep. And they've been studying atoms for years to try to figure out life. And inside of the most minute atom, every single atom, every single building block of life, there's a nucleus in that atom, in the center of the atom. And inside the nucleus of the atom, there are multiple uh, what they call uh, positively charged protons. And so if you guys know, like, anybody like, like magnets, right? Magnets, yeah, magnet people? Okay. So if you're a magnet person, Rob, right, if you take two positive magnets and try to put them together, what happens? They repel each other, right? They repel each other, right? You have to have a positive and a negative, right? Guys, you are learning so much this morning. You're, you're so welcome. Um, so here's the deal. In every single atom, in every single atoms being like the building blocks of all life, inside the nucleus of every single atom are two positively charged protons that are completely fighting against each other. They will never come together, ever, right? They're going to always be fighting against each other, pulling away from each other. And scientists uh, can't explain why that's happening in every single atom. So this is what they call it. There is a strong nuclear force in between two positively charged protons. That all the atoms, of all the building block of life, in every single atom, in every single nucleus, there are these two positively charged protons that are defying each other, and somehow, some way, there is a strong nuclear force that holds them together. And they're like, it's gotta be uh, some incredible force, you know, that's uh, holding it together, right? And Paul writes, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Come on, amen. I don't know, when I read that, I was like, I was, I was like jumping out of my seat. I was like, are you kidding me? That is amazing. Um, so, uh, yeah, science, who knew, guys? Um, there you go. Uh, <laughs> verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so he is the head of the body, the church. And so when we see that word head, uh, because it says body, we kind of think of like a physical, like our head and our body, right? Um, but that word head actually is better translated uh, how you think of like a, like a river, like the head of a river. Uh, what he's basically communicating is that J this Jesus, he is the source. 
He is like where all of life comes from. So like all the grace and love and mercy and everything that's, that's coming to us, uh, Jesus is the source. And like if, if Jesus were a river, all of that is flowing out of him and we are the recipients of this, this, you know, this kind of just source of just river of God's love and mercy and all that stuff that is kind of being poured into us. That he is the source, that everything that we have comes from him. And also that he's the beginning uh, we also see in Revelations where one of the names they give to Jesus, they say he is uh, Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end, that he was there before all things, and he will be there at the end of all things. And then he says this, which I think is so powerful. He says, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he talks about all this stuff that he was uh, the image of the invisible God. He has all the authority, authority. He created all things through him and for him. He was before all things. He holds all things together. He's the head. He's the source. He's the provider of all things to his body, the church. He's the beginning. And why is he all this? So that he might be preeminent. And that word preeminent, uh, I did a little like a Webster dictionary situation here. Here you go. Preeminent, unsurpassed, unequaled, unrivaled, incomparable, greatest, foremost, of highest regard, basically first. So because all these things are true, that's what Paul's saying, because he's the image, because he's creator, because he was before all things, because he's the source, because all of these things are true, if we are to follow him, he is first in our lives. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you have situations where you say things like this, like, yeah, God, I know that you say this, but I wanna live like this, right? Or like, God, I, I know you don't like this, but like, you know, culture says it's cool, so I'm gonna go this way. Or we say, oh, you know, yeah, but you know, I was raised this way, so it's probably okay my dad did that. Or like, oh, it's okay that I look at that, or it's okay that I do that with that person or whatever. There is none of that if he's preeminent. If he's first, if he's unrivaled, there's none of that. And he makes it explicitly clear that if all these things are true about the doctrine of God, and he's saying all these things are true, then he must be first. And we don't get to say, oh God, I know you say this, but I'm gonna do that. Like, that's not even a thing. Paul says it this way in Galatians, Galatians chapter two, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see what he says there? He says, I've been crucified with Christ that I, if I've given my life to Jesus, I have died. And I've been raised to life in Jesus and the life that I live now is not mine. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the life that you live now, it's not yours. You don't call the shots. You don't make the decisions because the life is his now. That's what preeminence looks like. And so if we're here and we're a follower of Jesus, he needs to be unsurpassed, unequaled, unrivaled, incomparable, greatest, foremost, of highest regard, first in our lives. Verse 19, where he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I love this verse. This verse is awesome. Uh, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so often uh, we like to think of God as like uh, angry sometimes. Like anybody here like you commonly think of God as like more angry than anybody willing to admit? Yeah. No, nobody? Okay, you guys are great then. Well, let's move on to the next thing. Um, no. Um, so, but he says, but in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that it made God happy to have his fullness in Jesus, for Jesus to be the full and complete, fully God and fully man. It pleased God for that to be so. And the reason is because it was through him that he was going to reconcile us to himself. Brian talks about this verse a lot, Hebrews uh, 12, 2. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And that's why it pleased God to have all of his fullness dwell in him, because he knew that the work that Jesus was going to do was gonna bring about the reconciliation of you and me. And it's for that joy that we would be with him, that we would be right with him, that he kept taking that steps closer and closer to the cross. It's the reason Jesus went through with it was for that joy set before him, which was you and me. And the main reason was that he wanted us to have eternal life. He wanted us to have eternal life. And here's what Jesus says about eternal life. Uh, And I just thought this was so powerful. John 17, verse one. So this is Jesus praying in the garden right before he's about to be crucified. Um, And right before he's about to go to the cross, there's like three chapters of him praying to God, praying for everything he could think of. Um, And this is kind of one of the last prayers that he has to God. And this is what he says. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And here it is, guys, this is everything. And this is eternal life, that they know you. And this is eternal life, that they know you. And I feel like when we talk about eternal life or when we think about eternal life, we think of like, oh God, you know, he had to come, we had to die so I can have salvation and all that stuff. And, um, but the real reason that God did all that was that we would know him. Like as we were like, as Haley was singing about and like as we were talking about it during worship that like God came that we would know him. And if you're in here and like anybody ever been like, hey, I wonder what God's will for my life is. Anybody ever? Okay, guys, this is great. Your minds are about to be blown right now, okay? I will tell you every single person in this room, every single person listening online, myself, all of humanity, has one will, that they know him. That they know him. And if you wanna know what God's will for your life is, that's what it is. He wants you to know him and he wants to know you. That's it. I know it's so simple, right? (laughs) And yeah, there's a lot of other stuff in there and what am I supposed to do with my life and blah, 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 but that's all secondary to knowing him. And so, 
when we talk about Jesus being the image and the icon and the exact representation of God, the reason that's so important to us that spiritual God gave us a physical Jesus, the reason that's so important is Jesus now stands as that icon to us, as that app on our phone where we look at that picture and we know what's going to happen when we click on it, right? That he is that icon for God. That we never have to ask again, I wonder what God is like. I wonder what God thinks about this. I wonder what God wants me to do with my life. Or I wonder if God loves me. Or I wonder if God's mad at me. Or I wonder, whatever, whatever that question is. Jesus stands in the face of that to say, you never have to wonder again because we look at the physical image of Jesus and we know what God is like. And that's what's so amazing about Jesus that we can look through the pages of scripture and we can find him. We can know him. We can experience him. And you don't have to wonder what Jesus is like. You just open up the book, right? And you see, you don't have to say like, oh, I wonder what God would do in this circumstance. You open up the freaking book, right? And you see, this is what Jesus did. This is how he treated people. This is what love looks like. You see what he taught us and it's all right there. And he is that image that when we look at him, we know what the Father's like. And God, as we see from this passage, God so desperately desires for us to know him. Like if you think about any prayer that you could pray, that you go, oh gosh, what's gonna be a prayer that God loves? I promise you, more than any other prayer, God loves to hear, God, I wanna know you. I wanna know you more, I wanna experience you more. I wanna see you, like he loves that. And when we come to him and say, God, like do that in me, or like I don't desire you like I wanna desire you, I wanna desire you more. Like God doesn't go like, oh, sorry dude, so bad. Like, no, he loves that. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna help you, we're gonna work through that, we're gonna do that. He wants us, desires us to know him. So much so that he says, this is eternal life and my will for you that you know me. And so if eternal life is knowing him and Jesus came and he died and he resurrected for us to know him, then we also have to understand that he's really serious about us knowing him. Like he's really serious about it, right? He says, this is eternal life, right? And if we're gonna have eternal life, that means we're gonna know him. And we're gonna seek to know him more and more. And we see in this passage in Matthew 7, which I think is the scariest passage in all of the Bible. I know there's like the, some of like the doom and gloom stuff in the Old Testament or like, you know, all that stuff and that stuff freaks people out. This one freaks me out the most. Um, and here it is, uh, chapter seven, uh, Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And we look at that resume and we go, man, dude, if that was my like Christian resume, I'd be like, yeah, we're doing this thing, right? Like, I'd be pretty proud of that one, right? And he says, but yeah, you prophesy in my name and you cast out demons in my name and you do mighty works in my name. And then he says, and then I will declare to you, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And so we see from this passage that like, God is really serious about us knowing him, so much so that Jesus came as fully God and fully man, as a physical image icon that we can see and look at and know what God is like and the purpose that he did that and the purpose of him resurrecting and giving us the Holy Spirit that will live inside of us, the purpose of all of that is that we would know him. And if you're someone that you go like, well, yeah, like, yeah, I'm gonna go out, God, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do this thing for you. Or like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna make you proud or I'm gonna, whatever, I'm gonna go do this, whatever on my own. And you know, all that stuff um, is nonsense, <laughs> right? Because he says, the only thing I care about is that you know me. And if you know him, then he'll, he'll do that stuff. He'll work that stuff in you. He'll send you out to do whatever, to do these things. But, um, but first and foremost, it's about knowing him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, he says. I'm gonna have the band uh, come back up as we close out. Um, and so with that in mind, um, taking in mind this Jesus, this doctrinal statement that we look at, that he is the image, the icon uh, of the invisible God, that he has all authority, all might, and all power, that he created all things, that he was before all things, that he holds all things together, that all of everything in our lives, all of creation comes from this source that is Jesus, and he is the beginning before all things, and he desires to be preeminent in our life, so much so that he came and he died and he resurrected and gave us the Holy Spirit, all for the purpose that we would know him. Our response must be, uh, as we talk about this verse often, that we abide in Jesus. And it's really easy for us to, um, it's really easy to take on religion. Like religion is, 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 is really easy to just go like, oh, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the thing, I, like, I, sh I shouldn't do that, and I slap my hand, or like, God, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prove myself and I'm make myself better, and, and it's just easy for us to jump into that. Um, but as far as Jesus is concerned, it's nonsense. Because the only thing that he cares about is that we know him, that we're in relationship with him. And that when we know him a little bit, that we desire to know him more. And when we know him a little bit more, that we lean in, desire to know him more. And he loves to reveal himself to us. He loves for us to experience him. And so guys, don't settle for religion. Don't settle for rule following don't settle for culture and don't settle for what the world says and don't settle for, I got Jesus in my little box and then you know, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go seek out this person to find out how do I be a good husband or I'm gonna seek out this author about how do I do this or I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek out this or I'm gonna seek out that or I'm gonna go out on my own. I'm gonna do. He says this, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, unless you know me. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And when you read that verse, you go like, nah, I can do stuff, right? <laughs> don't, don't you like, you're like, oh, I, I'm pretty good. Like I can do it. And he's like, no, 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 apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And I guarantee you that uh, you take out all the common grace that God has on your life that you don't even know about, and he pulls all that stuff away, then you would come to the conclusion, oh, shoot, I actually can't do anything, right? But he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's only about abiding him. It's only about knowing him. And he makes this promise in Matthew chapter six. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That we spend so much time thinking about like, oh, I'm gonna chase after these things or I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make myself better. I wanna be a better husband, a wife, a better father, a better career person, a, you know, a better whatever, whatever that thing is that you're like, oh, I wanna, I wanna go and I wanna do that. And the point that he makes is like, don't worry about all that. Just seek me, just know me, bring that desire to me. I wanna be a better husband. I wanna be a better wife. I wanna be whatever. He's like, just bring that to me, know me. I will build that in you. I will, by my spirit, I will build those fruits in you. Don't worry about all that. Just all you need to focus on is that you know me and that you dig in deeper with me and that you seek me in my word and that you walk with me through the day, that you pray continually, all that stuff, that you just walk with me, that you abide in me because, and he says, as apart from him, you can't do anything. And so what I wanna give us the opportunity to do this morning is um, as we jump back into worship, uh, I just wanna encourage you guys that, that if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, gosh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't feel close to him like I wish I did or um, I don't know him like I wanna know him. And, and you sit there and honestly can say, I don't desire to know him like I feel like I should. Or I don't, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't wanna give up these things or like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but like I, there's things that he says that I go and do the other thing. And I just, I just wanna beg of you, deal with it this morning. Lay it at his feet and say, God, I don't desire you and I want to desire you, God. Or I desire these things more than I desire you. Rip this junk out of my life and fill it with you, right? And that's why we meet, that's why we come here. Um, that's why we worship Jesus. That's why we come into this communal setting. Um, it's not... Uh, for any of the stuff that we do, it's that you would come here and be transformed by Jesus and then go out and transform the world, right? Amen. Um, so if there's anything that the Lord is speaking to you, deal with it this morning. If there's anything you gotta repent, anything you gotta ask the Lord for, if you just say, God, I desire or I want more of you, ask him for more of you, uh, for more of him, and I guarantee he will give it. He loves to give it. Um, so let's pray and uh, hop back into worship. Jesus, um, God, we thank you uh, for this passage of scripture to be so encouraged uh, about who you are, God, to know that you are the image, the physical image, the icon of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being, that you are fully, completely in all fullness, God, that you are creator of all things, that you have all the authority, all the power, all the might, that you were before all things, that everything comes from you, all that we have is from you, our salvation is from you, and you came for us that we would know you. And God, we just pray that you would deepen our love for you, that you would help us to know you better, that you would reveal yourself more, that you would call out sin in our lives so that we would be in right relationship with you so that we can abide in you and know you better. And so God, that's our prayer this morning. We pray that you do a work in our lives and we pray that as you do that work in our lives that we can go out to a world that doesn't know you 
And God, that the way that we live uh, would be so appetizing and attractive to them that they would go, gosh, I want to know Jesus like you know Jesus. And God, that's our prayer this morning. We worship you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.